From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in abstracted autumnal Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson. I, too, make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are finding fidelity and taking feedback. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. <laughs> Welcome to the clubhouse, Ellen. Yeah. I'm not Mark. Also, I didn't say that in the intro. <laughs> not Mark. Mark is away this week, so we get Ellen back as a guest host, which mm-hmm. is so exciting. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I like being here. Yeah. yeah we like having you. You guys are nice folks. <laughs> we try. <laughs> uh, so, in the news, uh, Widget Satchel was announced. I mean, Y'all already knew we were working on it, but now it's been announced for a uh, release. Uh, we'll link to our Twitter that uh, will tell you all the details. But like, yeah, we got a fancy trailer. That's so good. It's cool. Yeah, it's a really cool. Trailer. It's so good. A lot of explosions, which is important. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. Does it meet the Stephen Steve Steve approval? <laughs> what did we call it? Uh, <laughs> Stephen seal of approval. <laughs> that sounds better. Steve approval is a little. It's a little long, not gonna lie, but <laughs> but it, no, it is good. It is good. It's entertaining. Like I wasn't bored throughout or anything, so that's I did watch the whole thing. Oh, that's okay. There we go. And not <laughs> and not just out of obligation. So oh, nice. <laughs> I, uh, the trailer music is so catchy. I kept singing it around the office. That's yeah. amazing. Um, and then I thought my, Mark made that. I thought he for some reason I thought he had licensed it, but no, he totally made that. Mm-hmm. He is. Multi talents. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think his website calls him, it says polymath for hire. And I told him that he earned it. <laughs> he earned that title. One thing that Mark does not get to brag about is meeting Janeway. Yeah, I know. Oh my God. Yeah, I got to meet the actress who plays Janeway and Cap- Captain Janeway from Star Trek. Yes. Something. Voyager. Voyager. Voyager, yes. And it was really great. She spoke at a fundraiser for the Friends of the St. Paul Li- Public Libraries. Um, so it was a good cause to go to and I got to meet Janeway. So it was like double cool. Um, but yeah, it was really fun. And she in real life is a lot like Captain Janeway is in the show. Not that like, not that she's a spaceship captain or any, has any of that sort of thing. Of <laughs> course. Of. Right. Of, of course. But, um, like just when she's in a room, everyone feels calm because she has it under control and you don't have to worry about anything because she's going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it and it's going to be fine. <laughs> so it was great. She got all those people home from the Delta Quadrant. Exactly. She can, so, <laughs> she can handle a bunch of people who are all in line for her signing her book or whatever. It was, it'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Spoilers, I guess, for Star Trek Voyager. He didn't watch. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that was really fun. Wait, and she gave you a squeeze on the shoulder. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I came up to her with, in the line with my book. She wrote a book. That's why she was there. And she signed my book. And then I was like, can I get a picture with you? And she's like, sure. And then like put her arm around me and squeezed my shoulder. And it was great. Yay. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Made my made my whole week, basically. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. Um, Well, you guys want to dive into the first topic? Yes. Okay. So um, this is uh, we're talking about finding fidelity. And I think that needs a little bit more of a of a description before we really dive into it. So the 
this came up because um, I was playing the the Vive over the weekend mm-hmm. and um, had some experience with the Nux controllers, which Ooh. was pretty cool. Um, and then as we were just talking, kind of setting up for the show, we were discussing how how you know having different mechanics available to you kind of throws you can throw you for a loop because you have to find this new point of fidelity in in what you're making. So games aren't simulations. Some games are simulations, um, but the, the, with a lot of games, the thing that makes them fun is the the point of abstraction. Right. It's not. It's not that they're, you know. Uh, high fidelity recreations of real life actions. It's mm-hmm. the fact that they are rooted in real life actions so that they're familiar, but then they're abstracted to a point that you can be silly with them and have fun. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like a real life experience like jumping. And then there's the game game mechanic where you're jumping on blocks floating in midair. You know, it's like, it's, it's rooted in reality, but it's abstracted to a certain point. So mm-hmm. we wanted to talk today a little bit about that and, and how to kind of find that point of optimal fidelity and how we can find it in the games we make and how we recognize it when we see it. Yeah. So I was thinking, uh, after kind of explaining what the topic is, we might start by talking through some experiences we've had with games that really nail that point of abstraction or that Mm. point of optimal fidelity, and also maybe discuss some instances where it was missed. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That is a good question. Uh, I feel like, I mean, I, I think like developing games uh it's difficult to know uh what what is the right feel for your game in the, immediately um uh, and i think part of it is just like actually like i'll take widget central for example like we mess with the jump a lot platformers you know you live and die by how good your jump is <laughs> and how how like well it works um uh, so we spent a lot coyote of jumping <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean literally too yeah <laughs> Um, but I mean, like, uh, how, how your jump feels determines, like, how your player will approach your game. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's like how, how quickly you fall and how quickly you raise and all of this stuff, like, determines a lot about how you can approach um, difficult, difficulties in the game. So I guess, like, with Witches Hatch, when we were thinking about making the jump, uh, we wanted it to be, initially, when we did it for the game jam, we wanted it to be fast because uh, you basically just need to dodge bots and the bots would always chase you if you had a certain number of um, widgets over the threshold I think so like I think if you had like 10 widgets bots would always if they saw you they would start chasing after you so we wanted the jump to effectively also double as not just jumping between platforms but double as a way to dodge the bots mm-hmm. um, so we tuned it so that it would be faster both up and down um, but we, we ended up feeling like that was Faraday I guess. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know how a ferret jumps, but like it seemed right. <laughs> <when we did. laughs> um, and so like we really liked that jump. But I, I think a lot of people, well, a few people have come to us saying that the jump uh, doesn't feel as good to them after we've tuned it a bunch for the current game. Um, and I mean, that, I mean, that's just that it, we're not going to be able to satisfy everybody's needs, but I think that We've reached a point where, like, it's satisfying for most people. So. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it was a difficult, it was difficult to get to that point because, like, we, you know, you, you have to try a bunch of different values and things. And also the jump in widget satchel changes depending on how much, uh, how many widgets you have. So. Yeah. Which makes it, yeah, that's a whole different um, wrinkle in the jump mechanic. And it's, I was just inter- thinking about it kind of while you were speaking mm-hmm. that, you know, as a player, Playing 
platformers and jumping all over the place for years and years and years. I never really thought about that, um, how the physics of it have to be so tuned. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like being part of the development team, I didn't work on the jump, but I did jump a lot and we had a lot of conversations about the jump. So yeah. I kind of, it was a good introduction for me to, to start thinking about those topics. But it's like you're stepping into a different body, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Like, I know how my body jumps. Not, not very well. <laughs> um, but like, if I want it, I know how far it can jump. I know because I've fallen down a lot when I was a kid and probably more frequently than adults should. But um, like, I, I have a lot of practice with the mechanics of my body. But when you're stepping into a game, like, first of all, you're not using your body's controls. Yeah. Um, you're using some kind of medium to control your 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 persona in the world right um but yeah like you're you're basically stepping into this totally different world of physics and this totally different body and you have to figure out how to use it mm-hmm. and that's crazy yeah <laughs> it is wild and it's it's wild how successful we have been getting people to believe that in the game like getting people to you know um, feel like they have control over their character mm-hmm. in the game or not have control over their character if that's what you're going for. But yeah, I think like the physics of it. I think a lot of it is like the physics of it, right? Mm-hmm. The physics of the game. Um, and how when you do a thing, there's enough, there's immediate feedback. Just like when you move your arm in real life, there's immediate feedback. You can, you can feel your arm moving. You can see your arm moving. Mm-hmm. You can hear your arm moving if it hits a wall or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, there's a lot to it. And I think that like we tend to we tend to like we take a lot of what real life has and abstract it to a point where it's interesting or fun to move around in this virtual world mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. i think it's interesting how like you were talking to us about how the knuckle controllers made it feel weird for weight on your when you were playing the games yeah i can go into that a little bit um do you want me to do that or were you going to say something? Yeah. What I was going to say is like, I find it so interesting that sight is one of the things that can be tricked so easily, like into believing that things are real when they're not, or like you can suspend your disbelief mm-hmm. way easier if things don't look exactly right. than if like the uncanny valley of when things look wrong is way, a way narrower band than if something in like physics in the world doesn't work. Yeah. Like, you can make a telephone, like a low poly telephone or a low poly uh, water bottle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you'll st- your brain will still go, oh, yeah, that's a that's a water bottle or that's a telephone or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like if you try to throw the thing and it doesn't yeah. throw exactly how you feel, yeah. it should. Then you're going to be like, oh, wait, what? Yeah. This is a game. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's OK. So just to kind of add some some background to this, um, I've, I have a friend who has all the Vive stuff. Um, and I was able to play with his kind of new setup this weekend where he's got the wireless headset and he's got the Nux controllers for the Vive. And I had played a lot of Vive games with the wands, um, kind of the original controllers that came with the system. And and so I jumped into Super Hot and I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this because I've beaten Super Hot on the PC and I'm used to the Vive. And I totally... Really sucked. It was really weird um, because the the Nux controllers they have finger sensors, 
um, and we can maybe link to this in the show notes, yeah. but um, you're holding on to this control and you have your trigger, you have your thumb buttons, you have a couple of them, but you also have this sensor bar that sits in the palm of your hand that can, that reads how many fingers and what your four fingers are doing. Are they gripping the bar? Are they open? Do you have two fingers down one? So on and so forth. And they're pretty sensitive. Uh, but the way that super hot seemed to do it, and this is just based on my perception of how I was playing. When you grab an object, you have to keep your fingers closed around it. Otherwise you drop it. And the way that I was used to using the wands was like you, when you grip it with the trigger on the wand, you have that object in your hand until you take another action to deliberately drop it. Mm. And subconsciously my hand was, I think I had trained myself to work with the wand. So I kept accidentally dropping things with the next controllers because it just wasn't intentional. Um, Cause I wasn't having, I wasn't used to having to think with about how, how I was holding my fingers. Yeah. And I, you know, talked a lot with him about, with my friend about this and why I had this physical tendency to just let go. And I realized, I think it's because of weight. Because, you know, with a controller, you're holding it with your hand and you're used to using buttons to interact with the objects in the virtual world. But these, these sensors aren't buttons. They're just where you rest your fingers. And normally I don't, I don't think about grasping something unless the thing in my hand has weight. But in virtual reality, nothing has weight. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So like that that kind of abstraction was cool, but ended up being really frustrating to me because there it was extra fidelity, but was missing a piece of the real world that I think would have made it feel natural. Yeah. It was fascinating. I imagine VR is particularly difficult because like a lot of it is the immersion you get from jumping into a virtual reality world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like having those things uh not work the way that things work in real life is it can really bring you out of the experience mm-hmm. right yeah mm-hmm. yeah um yeah i don't know i i mean i don't, I don't like vr very much anyways yeah. <laughs> but i feel like i feel like it's it's a particularly difficult um challenge for vr specifically because of those things mm-hmm. I, I i imagine that your um suspension of disbelief is less um strong in in the virtual reality world than it would be in like on a screen mm-hmm. on, on the tv screen i don't know if that's the case but yeah more fragile because there are more things that are closer to you like you're relying more on your body doing things than your brain going oh we're doing this thing on the screen like right. there's a layer of separation there which but it's so interesting to me that making it more detailed more like real life actually made it less like real life like yeah. that's the cool thing about your story <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting i'm just thinking of i'm thinking i'm trying to think now of, of games where like it worked really well and the thing that or you know using some some kind of extra um extra mechanic to make the game a little bit more realistic was they just kind of nailed it. And the thing that comes to mind often that for me right now is some of the legend of Zelda games, mm. like on the Wii, if I remember correctly, where you'd like use the controllers, of wands and you draw back the bow and oh, you yeah. release it. And there's a, there's a VR game for the vibe. You can do that too. I think it's one of the ones like you get as a default. Um, you're like defending a fortress and you have a bow and arrow mm-hmm. and it just, I don't know, it works really well, even though it's, the, the only thing they're doing to add to the fidelity is letting you draw one arm back 
and keep one in front. But it just it just works really well. I think maybe the way that they use the haptic feedback or exactly when the the button press needs to be or just the motion of drawing your arm back is is really important, but it's that small thing and they they just did it really well. So those are some examples I think where they they took an extra an extra page from real life physics and yeah. brought it into the game really effectively. Yeah, I, I I imagine the Wii is specifically interesting because of all of the different things. Like I mean, like with Wii tennis, I don't know about y'all, but I felt like I was just waggling the um the stick a lot. Oh yeah. I didn't really feel like I was playing tennis. But some people when they were playing it they would act as though they were playing tennis. Um because I don't know that that is how they approached it. And I guess like I played it enough where I knew the exploits. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're gaming the system. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to move that much. So <laughs> so I just waggled it with my with my wrist instead of like, you know, swinging it with my whole arm. Mm-hmm. But um other people if like they don't know how it works. Um they don't know that the amount of abstraction that is in the game, then they um uh, they act as though they are playing tennis and maybe they have, they certainly have a more um, uh, physical experience with it, but I don't know if they, like they maybe have a more immersive experience because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess once you like know a lot of the stuff behind the technology, it's, those are ways to like that, like it'll bring you out from the experience too. Mm-hmm. I, suppose. Mm-hmm. I found myself now that I make games, I found myself looking at a thing and going, oh, you could have did this better instead of, <laughs> instead of just playing the game. <laughs> it's like filmmakers not being able to watch films anymore because they're like, oh, I could see how you did that wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Right. I was thinking about, um, there's this GDC talk and now I'm not going to be able to re- remember which one, so I'm not going to be able to link it in the show notes. But it was a, this developer who was talking about they were making some VR game um, where you like rescued babies from a burning building and people would throw them to you. And then you, oh I don't know, it was very weird game, okay, sure. but they talked a lot about making the throwing feel real, like mm. because um, specifically with the wand controllers, like when you move your arm and release the, or pull the trigger to release the object from your hand, uh, that timing has to be so specific and then it has to like, they had to do a lot of experiments of when they were going to expect trigger input Mm -hmm. and like sometimes delaying when the thing actually went because your hand wasn't exactly in the right place for the thing to go the way you'd think it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's. I'm glad that you mentioned experimentation because I feel like that's, for some of this, because it's just so naturally intuitive, you know, you don't walk around thinking, now I will step up this step, and now I will step up this step, and mm-hmm. I will grasp this door. And You don't think about those things, on a, you're not conscious of them, you just do them. I think that makes it more difficult to, to express them in game mechanics, because you're just not used to thinking about them specifically. And I suppose that's where experimentation comes in. So maybe we can segue to that part of the conversation, which is, you know, how do you think about experimenting around physics and what experiences do you guys have around doing that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I brought up before, uh, which it's actual messing with the jump and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is just, you just like do it a bunch, try out a bunch of different things, try out a bunch of different values and see what works. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is also like how you coded. Um, I think like with, um, uh, Clawbreaker, I, uh, did not know how to do, <laughs> <laughs> Ellen's doing the clawbreaker dance. 
we'll put this on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I didn't really know how to do like platforming uh, games at that point. So I just used Unity Physics, which was a mistake because Unity Physics is not super accurate a lot of the time. Uh-oh. I found anyways. <laughs> and, and to be fair, I probably maybe didn't implement it the correct way when I did it. But uh, so like the way I did it is I basically just put an impulse on the crabs whenever they would jump. Um, which worked. It does the job. But I think there are some times when like if the frame rate is not fully 60 frames a second or something, it's a lot of particles and stuff in that game. Sometimes. <laughs> and it's not like it's well optimized. Um, um, if, if the case is where your frames per second is jittering, jittering a little bit, then um, sometimes I think you'll jump lower than normal or higher than normal. I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, and like, I guess that's a case of where like uh, if I had... If I had a better understanding of how to code it, I wouldn't have used the impulse um, to do it. And then we don't use the impulse. We don't use impulses um, in widget satchels because of that reason. Because it like, I don't trust the Unity physics engine to do platformers anymore. So I um, make my own pseudo physics thing. So just because I'm not as technical as you are by a long shot, mm. um, impulse is a built-in feature to Unity that kind of works. Oh, uh, yeah. it's just a force. You okay. just put a, I just put an up force on cool on on the crab. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think now nowadays when I make a platformer, I like I will specifically change the velocity of the player um, to get the the feel I want from the jump instead of using the impulse. But that's part of the reason why. I mean, it kind of like Unity has built-in stuff to like to get you to get that jump or to give you the physics you want because they have like unity objects can have a mass and they can have like you know sizes and different sizes and stuff mm -hmm. and so the force you put on uh, an object uh, how much gravity will affect your um your player um is all can all be changed due to unity cool um but i i, ha I just i haven't found that i haven't found it to be as precise as i want um my uh platformers to work so yeah i've opted not to do that in future things I really wish that in school, when I was in physics class, they had used like video games as a way to teach physics. Because mm -hmm. yeah. like, I did not care very much about like physics was super interesting, but I didn't really realize that I would need it ever. <laughs> like that <laughs> classic thing, like when am I ever going to use this? Yeah. And if they were like, you can make a video game, and you're going to have to know all these like mass volume velocity acceleration things to make your stuff feel right and like playing around like i've learned so much about physics just from playing around with the numbers in unity like oh if i make this thing heavier what happens if i you know push the you know add acceleration here what happens like um i think in education like video games could really help with physics stuff yeah yeah, yeah there's a i think a um organization or group that uses portal to do that and we should try we should try to find that and put it in the show notes but yeah i agree like i think it's um it lets you experiment and you, like see the results of your experiment without having to gather a whole bunch of physical materials and i think that you know it kind of leads to the thinking that leads to interesting questions like the ones we're asking today is how do you use math essentially and this limited set of hardware tools to make something feel heavy mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah. That's the real question. Uh, I don't know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And so some of the, I mean, some of the things we were thinking about, I was talking about this with my friend was, I mean, we can use haptic feedback and you can tweak the, tweak the visuals in the game 
to maybe be a little smarter around when you're letting go of something. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe be a little bit less strict with grasping and what that means and definitely don't enforce handedness. Okay, but this is <laughs> yeah. just about the game. But maybe having something like a slightly inflatable piece of the controller where it's just like this bar that like inflates oh. and creates pressure against your hand. Oh, sure yeah. Okay. I, you know, yeah. I don't know. Somebody build that. Yeah. Get, <laughs> and then we'll experiment that, with it. Yes. That's a good idea. I like that. Yeah. I don't know how that would work, though. Right. Uh, engineering. Something that would give you extra feedback that you're holding something. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know if you could use rumble in any way, but that would be not the right feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I guess part of the problem is really that technology hasn't advanced to a point where we can reach the level of fidelity that makes sense for those kinds, that kind of controller than those Nux controllers we're talking mm-hmm. about. I mean, it's the same with the Uncanny Valley thing in that like um, there was a point where we were trying to make, I mean, I guess we're still doing this. We're trying to make things look as real as possible. Um, but eventually you get to a point where they look pretty real, but not real enough. And then it feels off-putting and creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, we just haven't gotten to a... Well, I think we're trying to, like, sort of getting out of Uncanny Valley now. Mm-hmm. But um, when we were, like, talking, when there were a lot of discussions around this stuff, we just didn't have the technology... We didn't have the technology available to, um, to you know, make it feel realistic or look realistic. Like yeah. uh, Tarkin in Rogue One or whatever. Mm. It just looked... <laughs> yeah. It's like the uncanny visual valley. And now we're, you know, starting to move, you know, create virtual beings that move past that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like VR, we're moving into this uncanny physical valley. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. I mean, I'm, I'm sure for people who are more experienced with VR development, this is not new. Um, but it was, it was new to me because of the technology of using my fingers as an input. Yeah. And it, I don't know, it just seems so natural to use fingers. And it seems like, oh, yeah, I can use my fingers in gameplay. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And it was so weirdly not. I guess we need to get more, do more experiments and get more feedback. Yes. <laughs> is, is that a transition? <laughs> if we want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds good. Uh, my topic is taking feedback. Um, I, I talked about this in a previous episode before, but um, I showed Rhythm Rumble off. At, at playtest, um, that's the new game you're working on at work, right? Yes, yes. I'm getting paid to work on this one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, money. Woo. <laughs> um, and uh, it was an experience. I hadn't showed a new game off at playtest in a long time. Um, showed Vengeance there several times, uh, and Widget Satchel there several times. And I think I probably showed like Game Jam games there, but those are all. Um, either complete experiences or like I didn't have as much of an emotional attachment to it. Um, but with Rhythm Rumble, like I'm doing all the design. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm doing a lot of the design, and it was it is my concept. So like I have a I have a pretty strong attachment to the concept, um, and I want I want to make this game in in such a way that like the rhythm aspects of the game allow people who are less experienced with fighting games to approach a fighting game. Um, and I wasn't getting that from, or people weren't really experiencing that much um, when they were showing or when they were playing it at playtest. Um, so I guess I wanted to talk about both that experience and, like, just in general, um, how to take in feedback and what to do with that feedback. Um, so yeah, like when I was showing off Rhythm Rumble, um, I felt like 
a lot of people, you know, I, even at work when I was showing it off, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about what this, what a game should be or could be. Um, and they will give you a lot of feedback, a lot of opinions, not all, <laughs> <laughs> not all of are good opinions. Um, but I mean, uh, it's it's all useful information, so you can, you can take that stuff in. But like a lot of people will t- oftentimes tell you what they think the game should be, um, and that's fine because like I mean, people have their own opinions, and people like a lot of times when when people are giving you that kind of feedback, they want the game to be this way because they think it'll be the most fun for them, and they use that as an idea to expand it to everybody. Um, but uh, that like all those kind that kind of feedback is not always useful because. You know, the, somebody telling you that this the game should be this way isn't necessarily the game you want to make, so it's not always going to be good to hear that. Right. You have a vision, and sometimes yeah. their feedback is not aligned with that vision. Yes, exactly that, yes. Um, but, I mean, that doesn't mean you shouldn't take in their feedback. Basically, I guess, like, the whole, the, the whole reason for this topic is you should take in everybody's feedback, but you don't have to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what I'm going to emphasize here. Um um, also, like a lot of people, uh, when you're playing a game, especially like in a fighting game or like a competitive game, they will tell you their opinions on balance. But really, at the at the early stages of development, nobody really knows anything about the balance of the game, including the developer. Like I don't know anything about how well um, one character does versus another character because like the game isn't done yet. You haven't you haven't gotten implemented all of the features and stuff yet. Um, and so, like, I, I have no idea whether or not this character is too strong or not strong enough. Uh, and as a result, like, people, but people will, that is, especially in a competitive game, it is um, the first thing that people can attach themselves to, mm-hmm. or oftentimes can be the first thing that they attach themselves to. So, like, for example, in, uh, when I was showing off for the Rumble, uh, there's a character in my game who's like the hip hop character. All of the characters are based off of genres of music. Really nice. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really enjoying that because like I'm taking music genres and turning them into fighting game characters, which is a very interesting uh it's a very interesting challenge because like how do you how do you make um uh, country country music like punch stuff? <laughs> that's amazing. Smooth jazz. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. I'm not gonna have smooth jazz in this game. I can't blame you. <laughs> jazz though, I'm gonna have a jazz character. Right? Oh yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, the 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 hip hop character, his name is Master Mac. Uh, I'm the hip hop apotamus. My rhymes are bottomless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he um, initially seemed very strong for uh, people who were just starting the game out because like they don't know how to block or they don't know how to um, uh, deal with like the tools that uh, this character has. Uh, and I mean, also part of the problem was, is that like the stages were pretty, pretty small. I've changed how like stages work and stuff based off of the feedback I got from playtest. Um, but like, it was very frustrating to see people have difficulties getting past, um, this character's moveset, even though I, like I knew how to get through it because like I developed the game and I specifically like know what things counter and other things. Um, but other people, when they first start the game, they don't know all of the information yet. And so they, um, they, I mean, they, they understandably got frustrated because like they couldn't figure out how to get past the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, uh, people were, you know, telling me that this character was OP and I like, and I was like, no, no, it's totally not <laughs> 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 because uh, I mean, and it's, and like, it was interesting because like I would, 
people would like use this character a bunch and then like they would beat other people who hadn't played the game a bunch and then I would ho- ho- grab the controller um, and then I would beat them with this character a few times or I would beat them with another character a few times so I was hoping that they would understand that like there are counters to this the way that this character works but uh, then they would just fight another person and then they would say oh this character is still OP um, even though like I beat him a bunch of times <laughs> so uh, I uh, like but I, I mean Mm-hmm. They're right, though, in that it is not immediately clear how to deal with the, the tools that this character has. I, I guess, basically, Master Mac has, like, long-range moves. And the other two characters in the game uh, are basically, the, they have the same moveset, but they're all short-range characters. So it wasn't immediately clear that, like, you could block attacks and then use that to get in closer and then deal your damage. Because you do way more damage when, you're, when you get up close. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as the other characters, but uh, it wasn't immediately clear. So as a developer, I like initially I was like, no, but it's really obvious. Just block the attacks. Just use the A button. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but like if if that option isn't apparent to people, then I need to do something to improve that. Right. So um, I either need to give players other options in order to deal with that stuff, or um, make it more apparent what options are available initially or already to to deal with these things. So like I use that information to improve the um, the feedback um, of of all of the like of the actions you can do in the game. Um, hopefully, that will make it more apparent what what you have to do to 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 deal with these mm-hmm. things. Uh, so sometimes it's like the feedback people are giving you isn't exactly what you need to do. It's like the way people are feeling about it, and then you like have to translate that into what actually needs to happen to make mm-hmm. them feel the way you want them to feel. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, like people, when they'll tell you, when they tell you something about like what they, what they want the game to be. Like if I were just like, am I, if I'm making a rhythm fighting game and I give it to somebody and they're like, you know what? I'd rather just have a fighting game. Um, I can still use that feedback in that. Like maybe they want either. I need to emphasize the rhythm aspects of it better. Um, or, um, I could improve the fighting aspects of it so that a fighting game player can still feel like they're playing a fighting game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like basically, uh, people's feedback can still be valuable. You just have to figure out how to translate it yeah. into into useful information. Um, One thing I found helpful in various forms of playtesting and, and user testing is when someone says something like, "This character is overpowered." Mm-hmm asking questions that are essentially getting at, well, why do you feel that way? And I, I think it's hard to ask that question specifically, why do you feel that way outright? Because they don't know. Right. Like, they don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know. I don't know. It's just not this enough. Like, that might be helpful, but you can, but one thing I find that's a little easier or at least a little bit more helpful, it gives me more useful information is, okay, well, tell me what you were trying to do, you know? And Because yeah. then a lot, like we were talking about this earlier, when it comes to physical action, a lot of that's just automated you don't think about it i was trying to open the door um you don't think i'm going to open the door you just open the door Mm -hmm. uh but if you ask people that question what were you trying to do then they can break that down in their mind and communicate a little bit more step by step well i was trying to block this attack okay so what did you try to do like what was the natural thing what felt natural to you to try to block that attack well i pressed this button okay and then you know you're hearing what they felt was natural yeah what you do with that you know not always clear. 
Um, but at least then you, you kind of get their intention and their reaction rather than their recommendation because you're right. Like their recommendation might not be in line with what your vision of the game is. Right. And just because someone gives you some feedback that the game should be changed in a certain way doesn't mean your vision was wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you get past that feeling of, of like frustration with people? Or not frustration maybe, but like. It, it can be frustration. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like I feel like when it's, I feel emotionally like it's hard yeah. to get feedback because I immediately like put up my defenses. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> like yeah. how do you, when someone's, I don't know if I could in the moment think, oh, I need to ask them this other question. Like, how do you get past that part? I think I it helps to be prepared um, to ask that question. Just like if somebody has feedback and sometimes, oh, I think oftentimes with play tests, like people are pretty, civil about like their opinions and things. Um, sometimes they're not, but most of the time they're. Um, but like even in a situation where like a person isn't being civil about it, like if you're prepared to ask the question, like the way that you framed it, Ellen, I really like the way you framed that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're prepared to ask them, what were you trying to do? Um, then like you can use that as a reaction to <laughs> whatever they say instead of um, saying, nope, you're doing it wrong. Um, because yeah, if if you like shut down um, a person while they're playing the game, then like they're going to have a negative. They're going to start having a negative impression of your game, and also like they're going going to give you as useful feedback um, because of that, because they feel like their opinion isn't as isn't as valuable to you. Um, but I think that's a way to help with that is just to like be prepared to ask that question mm-hmm. immediately. Um, it is difficult though. Like if you're really attached to this game. Um, and it's not being received in the way you like, and it's it's disappointing to to be there and see people having problems with it. It's hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The, the other thing I have problems with is just letting people struggle sometimes, yeah. where it's like, oh, if you just press the A button, that would work. Go press the A, press the A button, press the A button. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I have found useful is to just have my notebook there. So, like, if somebody's having a struggle point, um. I'll be busy writing the thing down instead of like watching them have issues. <laughs> and so you don't have to see them having the problem or I mean, you don't have to focus on it as much, just write it down and then keep it as a note. And then like, if they're stuck on it for too long um, with, with your judgment, then um, it can, you can help them at that point. But I think that's helpful. Now that I think about it. I don't think I had um, a notebook to take notes with my, um, the artist is working on the game, Sydney. She was the one who's doing a lot of the testing. And when I'm at playtest, like I'm working at playtest. So like I got to make sure people are engaged in a game if they're here to play a game or make sure that the devs have what they need to test their games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I wasn't really available to stay the entire time and watch Rhythm Rumble be played. Um, and so as a result, like I think part of the reason why I was having difficulty is I wasn't like focused on it and I was still doing other things. Um, and so I, when I saw people having a problem, I, I couldn't like sit there and talk to them and ask questions about why they were having issues. Um, that was up to Sydney to do that. And I think she did a good job, but I think that, um, that made it harder for me to deal with. Yeah. You were partially engaged with it, but you were missing a lot of the context. Like yeah, they're struggling with this. How frustrated are they? I don't know. Cause I haven't been interacting with this person for 20 minutes. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, you know, some some things that make development in general like a lot easier is getting really 
frequent incremental feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're working, you know, by yourself on a project, that's that's hard. And that's the whole reason we have the playtest night to begin with, right? right? Is because like a lot of people are working on da- games by themselves or with really small teams or distributed teams that are in many different locations. Mm-hmm. They can't just roll around the desk and be like, "Hey, Jane." play this thing for me. What do you think of this jump? Or yeah. how do you, do you think this hit is at the right distance? Or try pressing the A button and tell me what you think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but that's, that's that kind of incremental feedback is just so useful because then you, you make the change and you immediately get feedback before you have time to get emotionally invested in it. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was actually something that you just mentioned when you talked about Sydney running the playtesting is like, how a buddy who's not super invested in the game, you know? Yeah. If you can, just to kind of facilitate it. Mm-hmm. Um, that does help to have yeah. somebody else there to you know help you show the game off. And I mean, Cindy's pretty invested in the game because she's also doing a lot of art and stuff too. But uh, I, I, I was able to help her out. Actually, I might have been more valuable to for her in that like she could like uh, throw some of the stress of uh, showing your game off to, to me a little bit, uh, even though I wasn't there the whole time. Um, and so that might have been valuable. So I guess I was that buddy <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Hmm. But I think that I mean I'm sure that this is part of the reason why it's difficult. Uh, it, people have a difficult time uh, showing their games off initially is because like they're really attached to it and they don't want to get they don't want people to um, feel like they don't want people to feel bad playing their game. They want their game. They like they want their game to be well received and received in the way that they you know intended. Mm-hmm. Um. But in order to guarantee that you're doing that, you need to show it to people because otherwise you might be building things that you might be building in systems and stuff that are making the game less what you actually want it to be. Right. It's like that episode of magic school bus when Ralph or not Ralphie Carlos, when Carlos is making his instrument and he keeps for like the music competition Mm -hmm. and he thinks that he needs to add all this stuff to it to make it sound cooler. Uh, but then at the end, he figures out, oh, like all the stuff I was adding was making it sound actually worse. And if I go back to my like starting idea, it sounds the best. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. totally it. Yeah. This actually, I mean, this is going to be interesting. It kinda, this kind of relates to the whole idea of agile development, which mm-hmm. we're going to talk about in the, you know, I think the next episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you would need to test your foundation and that means you're going to be testing parts of your game way before you think that they're ready to be shown. Mm-hmm. So I, this is, I guess, um, a question for you guys, because I think, you know, Martha, I'm not sure how many playtests you make it to. Steven, I assume you make it to a lot of them. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just based on your judgment, I know this is hard because you're not developing all the games that are there, but like, do you really see lots of early concepts? So do you see people coming into playtests who are just testing game concepts or individual game mechanics? Or do you think people are waiting to come in until they have like a big chunk of a game already done? And, and what would you recommend for people who are like signing up for that experience? Sure. Um, I think yeah, you, we get a, a wide variety of, of people interested in showing games off at playtest. I think that like part of it is part of some of the people come in there with their game basically complete and they've already gotten, they've already decided what the game is um, and they don't really necessarily want feedback, but they're trying to market the game. And I mean, playtest can be an avenue for that. It's not really built for that, but you can do that. Um, and then there are, I've seen other people who have brought games, like they built it in like a couple of days and they're just looking for um, whether or not this is a good idea or not. Um, and then everything in between that. Um, I think that 
I think that it is difficult sometimes for people, especially especially at playtest, it's difficult for people to divorce um, their uh, what what they what they want from the game. Um, and, and in fact, like if, if like the fidelity of the game isn't quite there yet, because like, you, you know, you're just, uh, uh, what's it? Gray box, black box. No, everything is like squares. Basically <laughs> yeah. all of your art assets are, are squares. Yeah. Place um, stuff. Yeah. Then, uh, then the, the game is not going to feel, um, the way that it would when it is complete. And so I think that people have a hard time, um, uh, um, just seeing the mechanics of the game and understanding like how that all works with one another because like you know if you if you're not trained in that then you don't have that experience or you don't have the the, the know how to like exp- explain what is working about a system a game a game mechanic system uh, and so like especially so like especially here at Playtest where like there are people local who come in um, and they're not necessarily game developers um, they will play the game and say. Like and give you feedback about things that like you know you'll need to work in eventually, uh, but you don't have in yet. So like, if you just have a bunch of white boxes moving around, and um, there's no like rumble or anything like that, maybe somebody will go, "Hey, you should add rumble to the game." And like, you're planning on adding rumble eventually, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like at this moment, that's not the important thing. You're just trying to see whether or not these um, this thing all works um, together. Um, and I, I kind of find myself having difficulty with that because, like, as a developer, I can see that. I, I can see, like, the mechanics of things pretty, I'd like to say anyways, that I can see the mechanics of things pretty well. And so, like, I can determine after playing the game a few times what, like, works about it and what doesn't. Um, but uh, people who have not trained that skill set yet, they uh, don't. They, I mean, it's harder for them to see that stuff. Do you, have you tried and have you had any success with kind of like guiding people's feedback um, where you like say, okay, I'm testing out the, the crabs and clawbreaker. I want to see how it feels to stretch out one of the arms, you know, like to the right or to the left. And then asking people specifically about that mechanic so that you don't get things like, well, you should add rumble to it because that's not really helpful to you, right? You're planning on doing it anyway. And yes, yes, you're right. What did you think of the, about the claws? You know, does it help? Does it help or does it hinder your playtesting as a developer to to target, you know, to, to ask people to focus on a specific thing? Um, sometimes it feels like it then biases them to find something wrong with it, um, because yeah. people want to be help, like they want to find something to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because you want to be valuable. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense. Uh. But, uh, but sometimes, like, yeah, you have to, sometimes it can be useful because then you'll focus all of their, their attention onto one thing. And in fact, like, sometimes it might be cool to have them focus on something that you, like, I just thought of, like, like the gorilla thing where you tell someone to focus on something you don't actually want them to focus on and then see if they notice the other thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good idea. That's we should link to that experiment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a good experiment. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting uh, concept. I, I have I I have found myself like when we make small changes to like Fingens or something, and I want to uh, test those specific changes. I'll ask people to like play a certain character or something to so I can see 
how this character interacts with the game now or something like that. Um, but uh, I don't know that I, I don't specifically direct people's um, attention to a specific things. Um, in most cases, I normally will like allow them to play the game and then ask them questions about that stuff after the fact. Because sometimes the part, sometimes part of it is like I'm adding, I'm adding in feedback, and I'm trying to see whether or not people are understanding that this is the thing that's happening. So, like if I add it in, uh, like if I'm adding in like rumble and hit stun and stuff when like a player takes damage, um, I will like give them the controller and have them play it, and then afterwards I'll say, "Did you notice um, how much damage you were taking during this moment, or something like that?" Um, and then like they'll go, "Oh." I did notice that. Or, oh, yeah, I did notice that. I think part of, like, and then they'll, like, and then I can ask them more questions and I can see what it is that worked about that experience. Um, so I guess I I found it to be more helpful to just allow people to play the game and, and maybe give them a little bit of direction to, like, like saying, pick this character, please. But other than that, not telling them, or not telling them what to focus on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what do... Like one problem that I've seen a lot is that you have you want to test something specific later in the game, like yeah. level four or level five or whatever. But if you have people coming in who haven't played before, you're like pushing them into the deep end, so they're going to have a lot of problems and stuff with just basic stuff, which at that point in the game they wouldn't. So like the right. feedback you're getting, how do you like? How does how have, have you found any strategies for? Doing that, I have not yet. Maybe putting the tutorial first, anyway, and then jumping them right into the fourth level or whatever. Yeah, it hasn't been valuable. Uh, or it hasn't been valuable for me to do in that way. I think, like, I guess I've found that in that instance, you it is more helpful to like design an event that is more um, that builds that allows players to play through the game fully oh. and to like show the game off at playtest and try to get that kind of feedback because the player the players who are coming to playtest may not have ever experienced your game or if they have they've only experienced it once before or something like that whereas if you're trying to get feedback on level four it's hel- i think it's more helpful to just invite people to play the game and play through it fully mm-hmm. um like we we tried doing that with widget satchel in that like we would send people to the tutorial level level zero and then like we'd send them immediately to level three or four and um the game really isn't built for that, so like players would get stuck in ways that they wouldn't if they had just played through the whole game. Right. But because of the way playtest works, like uh, you're not going to sit there. Well, most of the time, anyways, you're not going to sit there and have people play the game fully the whole way through. Uh, so I think it's better to just like invite people to play for an afternoon and have them play through the game mm-hmm. in that instance. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like anything with human behavior is so contextual. And that's absolutely true for like the behaviors that people express in gameplay, and especially with Widget Satchel, yeah, like that can get hard quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I've specifically made some very hard places in level four, <laughs> <laughs> so if you get stuck there, you can blame me. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it makes sense that you know you you might get some useful feedback if you're just dropping someone in the center, like the middle of a game, but you're not gonna you're not gonna get natural feedback about the real game because right. you've created a different context for that playing that player's experience yes and 
just another thing that makes game development take so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have, uh, with Vengeance, we have like sent people into different levels early. But I think people have difficulties with that too because the like the Coral Reef is like the starter level. Um, mm-hmm. And it has, I think it actually has the most experiences because we've spent the most time working on that level. But like if we send them immediately, if they've just started the game and they haven't really played it yet, and then we send them immediately to like the volcano, which isn't the best level anyways, uh, I found that like people have a harder time dealing with that stuff because like they don't know how the game works yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's the same thing with, with that too. I guess like, yeah, I guess like in that instance too, it, it'd be better to just like have people, invite people to play it a bunch. Then you can get that feedback, and in, in I bet in later um, development times for Rhythm Rumble, I'll probably have to just get people to um, play the game a bunch. I think part of why I was um, frustrated with showing it off at playtest year is that like the people at work I've been playing or having people play and stuff, they uh, they they have a better understanding of how the game works because like they've been playing it a lot, um, and so I was under the impression that like things were more intuitive um, than I thought. Or, or than they actually were um, because of that. Um, and so, like, that's another reason why you should just show your game off as quickly as possible, as, as frequently as you can, um, so that you can see what uh, what biases you have about your game and, and try to correct those as quickly as possible and, you know, improve it in a way that makes sense. Get yourself out of your bubble. Yes. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever seen anyone bring a paper prototype in a playtest? Uh, yes, I did once. It wasn't a good prototype, though, so I didn't get a lot of good feedback. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've seen, I think I've seen a few people do that. And like, there are board games that come too. Like, Peter Yang he almost always comes to play test with the board game, um, stuff like that. Uh, I, I think I have seen some people bring um, paper prototypes, and that's a really quick way to get feedback about like a game loop and such. Um, it's sometimes difficult to, uh, simulate what will eventually be a video game in a paper prototype, but um, if you can do it, it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because then you don't have to spend like two weeks coding a thing. You can just spend an hour or two cutting out pieces of paper and using those as pieces and testing out a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, like you said, it probably depends on what you're trying to test, but right. yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So you can get feedback at the earliest as possible. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> feedback early, minimal effort. What's the one of the one of the principles behind the Agile Manifesto is maximize the amount of stuff not done, you know, which includes, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to waste effort. There's it's hard enough. It's hard enough. Don't make more work for yourself. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I assume if you're making a game, it's because you want people to enjoy it. Right. Maybe not. That's cool. <laughs> if not, you do you. Mm-hmm. Got to be smart, lazy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Smart, lazy. <laughs> Well, that's our show. Uh, If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or if you're nice like us. We really do need to know that you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too. We also want to hear directly from you, so follow us on Twitter at Nice Games Club where Dale posts cool Nice Games Club news and email us at contact at nicegames.club. Lastly, You can find more about the show and your nice hosts, as well as get all of the links and show notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 